0: Notice how the epistle and the gospel conspire together to instruct us, from which we learn that the mind is like a stomach. If you put food that isn't right, if you put food that's wrong into your tummy, you're going to feel sick. You're going to get sick. It's going to make your whole body sick. So, the Holy Apostle says, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are lovely, of good report, and so forth, think on these things. Keep those thoughts in your mind, like good food, that doesn't make you sick, but makes you healthy that gives you a sense of well-being and of strength and of confidence. And then we come to the Gospel, which is written on the eve of Holy Week when dreadful things are going to happen. Terrible things are going to be done. And so the possibility of the community gathered around our Savior, being sickened by all this, brought down by all this, is very great. And therefore, we have to remember why these things are going on. Yes, our Savior in Holy Week, especially at the end, the climactic day of Good Friday and the cross, Is trudging his painful way, that bloody path to Golgotha, but we don't remember that with every step of horrible, excruciating pain, he is speaking to you personally and he is telling you that you are worth this. You are worth this supreme sacrifice. No matter how impoverished your day may seem to you, no matter how reduced you may feel your life is, God himself sees you as this creation of his which is worth everything. Even such a sacrifice as Holy Week and all of its misunderstandings leading to betrayals, leading to whippings and scourgings and the crucifixion itself. None of this was done for God. Anselm of Canterbury, the Western father, who taught that all this was done to satisfy the anger of the father, is absolutely wrong. It was done for you. Of course it was done for you. And from that cross of ultimate pain, and we all know how you die on a cross, we know the details, we know that it is a slow drowning, a slow asphyxiation, horrible and unbelievable, the pain, the racking of every nerve and every cell in your body, your mind on fire with agony, we know all that. From the cross I pronounce the words, Forgive them. You and I have had some pretty bad days in our time. Those of us who are, as we like to say, of a certain age, who were not born yesterday, who did not fall off the hay wagon this morning, who have been around the block a couple of times, we who are high-mileage sorts of people, we've known tough times. We've known the dead ends of so many relationships and so many plans and hopes. But we've never experienced anything like that. This week is the ultimate university of salvation. This week is the school of salvation. In this week, if we have fasted aright or as best we could, giving it our best shot for the previous 40 days of the great fast, This week teaches us everything we need to know. It teaches us everything we need to know. But, let us understand what kind of education we're talking about. The French got it right when they say, you know, education is what remains after you've forgotten everything. It's the state that it leaves you in after you've forgotten whether Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 or 15. You don't get all that you can get wrong and still be the result of a good education. Because it's the kind of character that it leaves you with after you've gotten your diploma. That's the important thing. This is the week of final exams. This is when we learn so much. Oh, so many Gospels are going to be read, especially Thursday night with the reading of the twelve lengthy Gospels of the, of the final days and hours on this earth uh, of our Saviour. And so many hymns are going to be chanted and sung so beautifully by the choir. Essentially exegeting, commenting on the scripture. And the whole worshipping community of the people of God gathered around with their prayers. Each of us bringing our own thumbprint, our own voiceprint, our own biography. Our own hopes and dashed hopes. And who are we looking at? The Church paradoxically begins Holy Week by addressing this man of sorrows as Onymphios, the male, the masculine form of nymph, which is bride. He is the bridegroom. Now we know that going back thousands of years, whether we're with the Egyptians or the Chaldeans or the Babylonians or the ancient Hebrews, when any of those cultures want to conceive of the perfect acme of human joy, of human pleasure, the sheer gladness of being alive, what do they talk about? The Bridegroom, the Bride, the Wedding Feast, the Bridal Chamber. For all these cultures, and perhaps for all cultures everywhere, this is the very perfect icon of the pleasure of being human. And so on this Holy Week, a week of such vicious attack, of such assault, of such betrayal, of such pain unto agony, pain, the pain of torture itself, the torturing of minds and flesh. We see him as Onimphios, the young, the beautiful bridegroom. And everyone, families, neighborhoods, the whole village, sets aside its daily bickering, the daily soap opera of all of its angst, its anxieties, its mutual misunderstandings and arguings, and comes together to celebrate the feast of the wedding. (coughs) We will say, behold, the bridegroom comes. But about this bridegroom... He is the one who comes unexpectedly. Now, it doesn't mean that nobody knew that he was coming at all. He is the expected one. Everyone's expecting the bridegroom to come to the bride's village to marry her and take her. But they don't know when. So it is that tension between not knowing when the expected one is going to actually be with us. The tension between the unexpected expected one. And it gives these first three days of Holy Week all of their beauty, all of their stark, honest reality. And it puts us, it locates our hearts and our minds in exactly the right place. Because isn't that the way? We can pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And then one day when we're doing something else, it happens. A sudden moment of recognition. Ah! An English poet of the 19th century refers to this as the awe of things. When suddenly you look out the window or you look out of the windshield of your car or whatever and it makes sense. It comes together for you. A precious moment that's difficult to put into words. But that surge of joy that is felt by those who are waiting for the bridegroom. And of course, he doesn't come, you know. There are no buses <laughs> You don't go down to the airport and pick them up at a set time. You're standing at the gate of the village with your torches, with your lamps, with oil in them, and you are waiting 24 hours a day. And so often it happens in the middle of the night. And you're there and you're wiping the sleep out of your eyes, and you hear the jingle of the the reins and the harness of the mules, the doggies, the horses, whatever they're coming by. Or you just hear the human steps and voices and it's dark. There are no streetlights. And who is this? It's him. That is the state of expectation in which we are expecting the expected one who will come unexpectedly to us this week. We put as the sign over the Broken and derelict body of the Savior who has died on the cross before he has been taken down. O vasilas tis doxis, the King of Glory. Once again, the Church summons us to see what is really there not just the surface of another dead man put to death with criminals. And I do not have to imagine in words before you today what that body must have been like, what state it was in. But we see what he really is. Even so broken on that cross, He is the king, and he is the king of glory. This Palm Sunday recognizes his kingship in a more normal way. We are carrying the palms, the boughs of trees that remind us of our ultimate allegiance. We have allegiances which are good ones and are right ones to so many things. If we are married, we have an allegiance to our spouse, which is a primary, a fundamental, committed allegiance. Unless we are living in some horrible circumstance, Stalin's Russia, Hitler's Germany, we have a right allegiance to our country, to the nation in which we have been born, in which we live. And that is a good allegiance under almost all circumstances unless there is a complete collapse of honorable government. But the ultimate allegiance of all of us is to Christ. And the palms and the branches remind us of that ultimacy. That this is finally where it's at. This is the bottom line of my committed life, of the conviction of my mind and of my heart. To this I give my all unreservedly. And that is the test I put myself to every day of the year as I come to the end of the day, assessing that day, its failures, its sins, its bleakness, its many breakdowns and go through my little confession, repenting of all those blemishes, all those sins on my day, for which I and I alone am responsible. But I can't do that unless that criterion by which I judge, that standard by which I judge myself in my day, is not clearly in mind. And so, what we carry once a year, the palms and the branches, are carried in our minds and in our hearts all the time. It is a kind of banner, a kind of flag, that is always within us. And we know that the reason that the people greet our Savior with such enthusiasm, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is He, that cometh in the name of the Lord, is because spreading like wildfire is the news of yesterday's big event in a suburb of, of uh, Jerusalem, Bethany, that we were on the bus and going through and seeing. And this is where our Savior has raised Lazarus, the four days dead. And nobody can believe such a stupendous miracle. And as you know, Christ is eating at a banquet, with, uh, reclining at the table, because nobody sat at the table in those days, they laid down, <clears throat> probably what we should all do when we have a good meal, um, they lay down at the table. And Lazarus was there, eating, speaking, drinking with all the others. So there was no question but what he was alive, and it was him. His sisters, his best friends were there. They recognized him. And you know we have a relic of him taken from his sternum. He became the bishop in Cyprus. And he was uh, buried there. So Lazarus is the trigger for the joy that the people felt. But already there is a cloud in that blue sky. That's true of us. We can be having a very good day and then there will be some no for a yes, some problem canceling out our solution. And, of course, it is Judas. And uh, they come and they break a vial of very expensive perfume, which has a beautiful fragrance. And Judas, who is the treasurer of the apostolic band is indignant. Why was this not sold for so many denarii and, you know, then we could have uh, given it to charity? But you see, his ultimate allegiance was not to the Savior. Those who loved Christ more than anything else, and it means exactly what it says, more than anything else more than anything else could only rejoice at seeing this fragrant liquid applied to the body of the savior ooh and one's whole being smiled with the pleasure of the experience but not judas he found a reason to not join that joy To not join himself unto that joy. To withhold himself from that ultimate joy. Because clearly, and the reason that the Gospel includes this is that this is a significant clue. Clearly, there is something in Judas that does not love the Savior more than anything else. Ah, and who will come into the garden over the brook Kedron and kissing the Savior betray him? Today, like so many of your days and my days, is an ambiguous day, saturated with the hosannas of the welcoming. Of Jerusalem to its actual king, not the Herodians, the Azorian dynasty which is ruling politically, but the actual king of the true Jerusalem. Again we must see through the surfaces of things to what is true and real. And that is true of every day and every relationship and every circumstance and every situation in which we find ourselves. In addition to that day, there is the darkening of Judas. And let us not fail to see, in behalf of such a good cause, Judas steps back from all the others and chooses not to rejoice. Ah, but money for the poor. Ooh, ah. But the love we have for the Savior must transcend even good causes, even charitable events. It must be our ultimate commitment. It must be the bottom line of our final allegiance, or it's nothing. The hosanna will ring in our ears, even as the storm clouds gather around the figure of our Savior. You and I will weep. We always do. Every year. Just before the sheer facts as they come to us through the Church, through this grand and glorious week, and through all of its gathering darkness, you and I, privileged as we are, the baptized, never lose sight of one point of light. And as the darkness gathers, that light will become more apparent to us. The light of the empty tomb itself. That on the other side of all the horrors of this week, even on Good Friday, all the horrors of that terrible day, is the light of life itself. May our eyes be so clear, even through our tears, that we never lose sight of that light, not only on this week, but on all the little crucifixions that you and I will endure for the rest of this year until the next Holy Week. And may it be so. And amen.